Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, defining happiness and success, all that good stuff. And on this episode, we've got a really special guest. This is Greg Jackson, founder and CEO of Octopus Energy, one of the most exciting companies in the UK right now. So before we get into the episode with Greg, um, just to say I am... I've just handed in the first draft, actually, of the new book, which is going to be called Fixing Meetings, A Productivity Ninja Guide. And whenever I talk to anyone about meetings, they say, oh, man, I'm going to really need that book. So we're excited about it. It's uh, myself and Hayley Watts, who's one of Think Productive's Productivity Ninjas. And she's really our kind of go-to person around the whole um, area and topic of meetings. So we've had in the first draft. It feels a bit like I've emerged from a tunnel which was pretty heavy for a couple of weeks. It was, you know, the full on 5am starts and late finishes and really kind of uh, burning some hours last week to get it all done. And now we've handed it in to Ellen. It's like, what happens now is I just have daylight for two weeks or something until I get it back. And then it's like back into the tunnel again. So it's a real stop start um, sort of process from now, you know, sort of getting the, the edits back from Ellen with her comments and then making changes to it. And then you know, and I think we're in fairly good shape with it. And by the end of the process, I think it'll be a really good book. So um really excited about Fixing Meetings, a Productivity Ninja Guide will be out next year. And if you haven't yet caught up with WorkFuel, you know, because it doesn't feel like that long since the last book came out, right? It's like um, earlier this year. And WorkFuel is the Productivity Ninja Guide to Nutrition. So it's all the learning from me being coached by my friend Colette Hennigan, who is a nutritionist. And she really changed my life in terms of diet. And what's great is we're finding that is happening out there in the world. Um, so there's a lot of word of mouth effects going on with WorkFuel. And what's happening is people are making big changes to their own diets. They're really experiencing much higher levels of energy and productivity. And then they're buying it for their team or they're buying it for their mates or they're buying it for their partner. And it's really starting to spread. So um, really exciting. And if you haven't yet checked it out, go on to Amazon. Or if you don't like Amazon, go to Hive. Uh, which is a little site that um, uses local bookstores as the kind of distribution model for internet books. Uh, so go and check out Hive. And uh, you can also get get work fuel from all the usual, you know, bookstores. Um, WH Smith's in stations and airports is always a really good one for any kind of business book. But uh, yeah, go and uh, check out work fuel and let me know. I'd love to hear some more stories and messages. We've just had some amazing feedback on it. And um, yeah, really excited to uh, keep the ball rolling and keep sharing it with people. And we have some pretty big plans as well to just get it into more companies and make it more well-known. So um, go check out WorkFuel. Right. So let's get into this episode. This is Greg Jackson, CEO of Octopus Energy. Uh, founded it back in sort of late 2015, early 2016. And since then, they're on course for a million customers this year disrupting the energy industry. We're actually going to give you a little um, referral thing at the end. So if you want to having heard this, if you want to switch to Octopus Energy, um, and I actually did it this morning, and it literally took me about three minutes and was a pleasure. And I was actually really shocked, um, which goes to show that a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode, Greg really is walking the talk because a lot of what we talk about here is making the process easy, really good customer service, kind of tech-based approach to stuff, how to disrupt a really annoying, boring, unsustainable industry and make it environmentally sustainable so they they use basically renewable energy sources for all their their energy and um yeah it, they're just a pleasure to be around really good buzz in their office as well in soho um, where we recorded this on a very muggy day so let's get into it this is my conversation with greg jackson 
So we're, it's a very muggy day and we're in London and I'm with Greg Jackson. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. But it is muggy. <laughs> it's really muggy. I've just spent two and a half hours getting here on the train from Brighton. And do you know what I also realised was um, I left my carriage to go into the next carriage to sort of walk along a bit to get off. And the next carriage was really well air-conned and mine was terrible as I've been sat there for two and a half hours. So one of those things that, that happens in London. Um, We've got all those apps that tell us which seats are free. Yeah. Maybe we need one to tell us what the temperature is in each carriage so we can each find our comfort zone. Well, I suppose their working assumption is that it all should just work, isn't it, right? So it'd be like, we need one for the Virgin trains to tell us where the toilets are really stinky as well. Yeah. Um, that's the other one. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm uh, here in your offices in Soho. Very buzzy outside this window here. Lots of people on the phone having conversations with customers looking at your uh, your happy index on the wall, which we'll come to as well. Um, so you're the founder of the business. Um, it's been going since 2015. Should we just start with the basics of like, what do you do? What is Octopus Energy? Just give us that kind of overview. Yes, yeah, so look, Octopus Energy is a future energy company. Our job is to transform energy from, from the way it used to be, which was, you know, um, dirty energy that damaged the environment, brought to you by companies who kind of saw the, customer is almost an afterthought, an inconvenience. Um, and instead, start thinking about the world in which we can drive green energy, where um, we can increasingly move towards lifestyles which get close to zero carbon, and where instead of customers having to fight energy companies to get a great deal, they just naturally are treated the way that customers should be. So with long-term fair pricing, and given the opportunity to enjoy cheaper energy when the sun shines, the wind blows, that's kind of our mission. Uh, yeah. Today we're doing it here in the UK, and over time we'll be taking that mission around the world. So we'll talk about the eco part of that in a minute, but just the customer service part of that. Um, so what's interesting is when, when I think of energy companies, the first thing you think is functional, and probably the second kind of thing you think is just, you know, really boring, probably really bad customer service, a real grind. So the idea of, of bringing really good customer service to this kind of industry is almost a little bit counterintuitive in itself. So um, tell us about how that formed in your mind as a key differentiator or key kind of competitive advantage for you guys. Yeah, for me personally, uh, one of the key drivers was I got an energy bill. I moved into a house uh, and after some time got around to dealing with the chores of life and I looked at one of the energy bills and I thought it was quite expensive so I phoned up the energy company one of the big six and uh, while I was on the phone they said oh it is expensive because you're on a default tariff when you move in you haven't got a deal contract with us so we put you on on the default we'll put you on a contract and immediately the bill fell by 30 or 40 percent and you know I was kind of pleased with that I thought that's fair enough um uh, what really shocked me was a few years later, maybe two years later, I, don't know, I got around to opening another bill. And when I did, it was back up where it had been. Mm, and yeah. I phoned them up and I said, hey, I thought, you know, you'd cut my bills. And they said, well, we did. Yeah. But it was only a one-year contract. And since then, we put you back on the default. Yeah. And I was like, hang on. So you expect me every year to check what you're billing me and then phone you up so that you can put me on the price I should be on. And um, the guy was kind of confused. He thought I should be grateful he'd cut the bill. But instead, <laughs> I was grumpy that what they do is the moment you're not looking, they hide the bill. Yeah. And of course, 
that pattern exists in so many industries. You know, you see it in financial services with the savings rates, you know, uh, interest rates on savings accounts. Uh, you see it on insurance companies. You see it in markets where customers are not making a conscious purchase decision. So news agents can't do this on Mars bars because every time you might buy a Mars bar, you see the price. Yeah. Tesco can't do it because every time you buy milk, you see the price. But the companies that have got access to your bank account through a direct debit have increasingly realized the path to profit is to lure you in with a loss-making price. And then as soon as you're not looking, hike the price, maybe not even hike the direct debit, but build up a, a debt. And then yeah. one day write yeah. to you and say you're in debt. And actually, you're only in debt because they hiked the price when you weren't looking. And I just think that's destructive capitalism. No wonder people lost trust in business. No wonder people lose trust in the system when the system works like that. And my favorite marketing minds is a guy called Seth Godin, and um, he had this uh, speech, which is on YouTube called, YouTube called This is Broken. And he lists a whole bunch of reasons why things in, in markets are broken. And one of the reasons is broken on purpose. And yeah. there is a reason why they, that stuff is broken, because they know that's the, the path to, to you know, more profit. Like stuff like printering, yeah. right? One of the yeah, most expensive yeah, yeah. liquids on the planet. I think it's more expensive <laughs> than blood plasma <laughs> per milliliter. Uh, so in all those markets where it's not even necessarily the companies have been e- evil, it's just that short-term optimization mm. has led to, you know, to win a customer, they cut the price to the point they're losing money. And then to earn that money back, they do it in opaque ways. But I think the opportunity now exists for companies to really fight against that, you know, newcomers, people like us, and to say that, you know, a good example would be a traditional big six energy company will, every month, they'll send you an email saying your bill is ready to view online. Click here mm-hmm. to log into your online yeah. account to download it. And so what they've done is they've hidden their pricing behind an email with a link to a login that you'll almost certainly forget because they'll have chosen a password format you'll never remember to download a three-page PDF that is the price of two products. Yeah, yeah. Two products. Yeah. So instead what we do is every month we write to you and in the preview pane of the email, it says what you've paid for your energy. So what we want to do is make it totally obvious to everybody what they're paying for energy. And then you know whether you're getting ripped off or not. Yeah. And I think finding ways to... Uh, turn transparency into a competitive advantage is the way in which forward-thinking companies that embrace customers are going to restore trust in business and start to drive the change we really need, start to drive the honest conversations we need in markets like this. Uh, So I guess for us, this has been a massive opportunity to not just say this, but prove it on a big scale. Yeah. And, And so when we first started, I remember we hired a brilliant marketing person but she had previously worked at British Gas and she uh, saw a price rise email and our price rise email the opening sentence is uh, your prices are going up by 11% (laughs) and then we'll explain why due to global wholesale or something and that means your monthly bill will go from £70 to £80 or whatever the figures are and it's right there in the preview pane of the email And, and the person who previously worked in the big six said no 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 when you do a price rise bury it what you need to say is nothing to see here, everything's mm, cool, yeah. have it as far down the communication as you can, and lots of other messaging around it. And of course, that's the received wisdom, because they're quite understandably, most businesses are worried if they're upfront about a price rise, they're going to lose customers. Uh, 
but what we did was um, when we first started doing this, we run a trust survey among our customers uh, before and after price rises or uh, to customers who'd had them and customers who hadn't. And we found that if a customer had a price rise that we'd been honest about, they trusted us more than they did before. Yeah. Right? Because we'd been up front. By the way, they didn't like it. Right? We got a lot of feedback going, we hate this price rise, but thank you for being open about it. And I think that's how you build long-term relationships with customers and long-term trust in a company and in a business. And take something like energy. You know, we've got two major battles to fight. One is bringing fair and transparent pricing with great service. And the other is fighting against climate change. And if people can't trust us on the basic topic of what they're paying, how are they going to trust us as we try and help drive uh, the entire system to a green future and all of the difficult conversations that's going to require? For sure. Do you feel like, it feels like there are attitudes that are developing now, particularly around some of the big tech companies and around big corporations where the attitude is these guys are sort of out of control and they're a force, you know, against the fight against climate change. You know, they're actively part of the problem. They're polluting, they're causing excess consumerism, all these kind of things. But it feels like there's almost like this defeatist attitude where these things are just, they're just almost like a force of nature in their own right. And how, how on earth will we stop that? So do you feel like um, by trying to change that, within Optimus Energy and then being a, a sort of disruptor in the industry, do you feel like that is something that can fight back against that sort of force of nature? Uh, yeah, I think if, if we break this out into a few components, so if we look at those global megacorp uh, technology businesses, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and, and a handful yeah. of others, uh, we see one bunch of behaviours that causes concern. So, for example, yeah, I think... Three of the ones I just mentioned collectively paid forty-three million pounds in corporation tax yeah, in the UK yeah, last year. Yeah. So are they doing their bit um, to contribute to the critical uh, requirements in society for education and infrastructure? Else, no. And um, similarly, you know, are some of them monopolistic and, and uh, data practices kind of helping drive a more open, transparent, honest uh, society? Uh, where we're in control of our data and we know who's saying what to us. No. But I think there's another side to those companies. And by the way, I think we should do things about those issues. Yeah. So nothing that I'm about to say excuses those yeah, problems. Sure. Uh, but there's another side to those companies, which is uh, actually they are staffed by progressive millennials that want to make the world a better place. Yeah. And um, one of the things that most of them are doing is rapidly driving towards green energy, as an example. So I think all of the ones I just named uh, have got commitments to drive all of their operations to uh, clean electricity. Uh, they're building their own green generation. They're building uh, server farms in places that they can power them and cool them with uh, clean energy. And that's a really important part of their mission. So I think, as with most humans, there's neither all good nor all bad. Yeah. But on the clean energy front, I think they're doing really good stuff. And, and I think that really matters because if, you know, a, a large uh, technology company with a big energy footprint through its data centers 
is able to demonstrate that it can run on clean energy. It's a beacon for every other business. Uh, not only that, but because they've got super bright people, they're doing it in clever ways. Yeah, right. And once they've invented a clever way of running their business on green energy, mm. we can all benefit from that learning, that technology. And how do you see the big six energy companies? Uh, obviously, you know, obviously, there's a, a sort of way that they operate, which is uh, very inefficient. That it's sort of based on quite old infrastructure. There's all those things that you just talked about around, um, you know, broken on purpose, kind of you know, burying the, the, uh, some of those price rises and stuff like that. Do you feel like your job is to put them out of business, or is it to change how they do business to be? more like the customer-centric and more eco-model that you're, that you're espousing? So, uh, first of all, I mean, our job is almost to ignore them and just <laughs> do the right thing. Yeah, okay. okay. So, uh, I don't see them as our competitors. There are two or three other companies that do great work in driving cleaner energy with great yeah. service and pricing and transparency. They're our competitors. Uh, however, we can't ignore the fact that the big six are still currently... Uh, they're the larger part of the market, although very rapidly shrinking. And if we look at what's going to happen to them, I'm pretty sure it's going to be what happened in airlines. So uh, what you've seen in airlines is, it's a great Wikipedia page, European airlines ranked by passenger numbers, revenue and profit. Okay. At the very top of the list is uh, Lufthansa. And next to Lufthansa's name, there are half a dozen flags. And those flags, the other flag carrying airlines that ended up being consolidated into Lufthansa. Oh, wow, okay. And next in the list is IAB, British Airways. Yeah. With five flags that are the airlines that got consolidated into British Airways. And then next is, I can't remember if it's uh, EasyJet or Ryanair, but it's a low-cost airline. And then next is another low-cost airline. So what you've seen in airlines is that the lumbering, bureaucratic, dinosaur, formerly nationalised incumbents have... Uh, typically consolidated and have consolidated into the companies that had the best balance sheets and the best brands, like Lufthansa and British Airways. Uh, those companies have managed to wrestle themselves into the 21st century by bringing better technology to bear and actually learning from the low-cost rivals. Uh, meanwhile, some of the low-cost rivals have made it to the top of the charts, uh, you know, and certainly in, in revenue, uh, passenger numbers and profit, alongside those reformed flag carriers. Right. That's what's going to happen in energy. So the big six will become the big two or three in the UK. The same will happen in other countries. Uh, and that will happen by some of the incumbents exiting the market, others consolidating. And some of the companies that are rapid-growing, technology-based, customer-oriented channels like us will end up as the new kind of major players. Cool. Um, and it feels like you've come a long way in a short period of time. So it started in 2015? Yeah, we actually launched um, the public in May of 2016. 2016, yeah. okay. And uh, 600,000 customers? Where are you at now? Yeah, 750,000 okay, cool. households today. So, I, so, the, so the last figure I got off uh, Google is 600,000. So that probably shows everyone the trajectory of how quickly that's growing, I guess. Yeah, it grows between um, 50,000 and 100,000 a month. Wow, okay. So cool. it will be... We'll hit a million in the next few yeah. months. Um, and I think that, you know, our revenue is well over a billion pounds this year. or yeah. will be well over a billion pounds this year. So for a three-year-old business, or three and a half by the end of the year, you know, that does feel, you know, <laughs> like we've come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, globally, energy is a two and a half trillion dollar market. 
And, uh, you know, when I meet people, it's either you're looking down the hill and saying how far we've come. Yeah. yeah. And for a three and a half year old business, you know, million household, billion of revenue, uh, multiple operating sites in the UK, lots of achievements. That's great. But if I look up the hill and say, you know, look, our job is to reform energy globally, to bring cheaper, greener energy across the planet. Yeah. We've got an enormous way to go. We've got to just keep speeding up our growth to achieve that. And are you just in the UK at the moment or are you starting to tap into that, that bigger global? Yeah, so we announced a couple of months ago we'll be launching uh, with a partner in Australia in October. Okay. Uh, Australia is a country that desperately needs the um, green energy revolution. It has very high carbon emissions at the moment. It has very spiky energy pricing. And an extreme climate, that means they're massive consumers mm. of things like air conditioning. Yeah. We've got to make that green as quickly as we can. Yeah. And then uh, we have uh, pretty advanced conversations in half a dozen other countries. So I think over the next year, you'll see us in several countries really taking this kind of technology-driven, consumer-focused green energy uh, program to another level. Um, so you mentioned they're looking up the hill, which is really exciting, and looking down the hill, which, you know, you should really congratulate yourself also for what you've done. Are you someone who generally looks up the hill rather than down the hill? Like, how, how, how does that kind of sit with you? Yeah, you know, um, every, everything you achieve, every day you deliver something, something for me, is, um, is just the launch pad for the next phase. Yeah. Right? So all you're ever doing is building your own launch pad. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, up the hill... How unbelievably exciting is that opportunity? And we created the permission to do that by everything we've done to get here. Uh, so, yeah, I probably look up the hill. And there's a great, uh, obviously one of the great business philosophers of all time, Kenny Rogers, the uh, French and Western singer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in The Gambler, he says, you know, never count your chips while you're sitting at the table. Uh, it's yeah, a massive yeah. lesson in that for yeah. people in business. Like, you know, there is no moment we can be at all... Uh, complacent mm. while we're still building this but also did he enjoy gambling do you think because because uh, that's the other thing isn't it is um uh there was a, i heard a really great interview with jimmy carr recently actually where he said um uh someone said to him oh, jimmy carr you've made all this money um when are you going to stop touring and working so hard and working relentlessly when are you going to maybe semi-retire or something and he said if i wanted more days on the golf course i'd have started out by being a golfer right um, and he just loves what he does. So is that how you see work and what you do? It's like, I'm, I'm loving being sat at the table. I'm loving playing this game and having the chips and, like, and looking up that hill to the next bit. Totally. You know, this is not something to do in order to get to the thing you really want to do. It's the thing you really want yeah. to do. You know, and you talked about the buzzy, vibrant office. You know, there's nothing I love more than the team that we built, spending yeah. time with them. Yeah kind of whether it be listening to their ideas, helping them with the things they want to achieve, talking to them about their own goals or inspiring them to, you know, um, uh, develop themselves faster and further than they ever imagined or whatever it might be, even dealing with problems. They're all the things that really thrill me. So, you know, building the, the business is not just about, you know, building millions of customers, although that's crucially important giving them outrageously good service is absolutely a focus. Um, greening energy is an imperative. And then building a team that you can be so proud of 
and 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 really love yeah it's a privilege um i read a thing where you were saying that your your parents were academics and did a lot of studying around marx and labor and sociology and stuff and um uh was talking about the concept of alienation yeah Um, and so do you feel like that's an important thing to for you to sort of bear in mind with work. You want people to be at work feeling like themselves rather than feeling like they're being kind of, you know, put into a box or having to do things in like a particular way. Totally. So look, um, yeah, my mum studied sociology uh, and, and really uh, she would come home and over a bottle of red wine and a couple of packs of fags espouse, I mean, talk endlessly about some of the concepts of Marx and Weber. Yeah. And it's interesting to talk about that in business because I think not many people kind of expect Marx to crop up in a, <laughs> a kind of a capitalist scenario, an entrepreneurial scenario. But He was pretty wise about capitalism. He was very honest, wise so. about it. And, yeah. and by the way, you know, he, although obviously he's famous for his sympathy for the workers, he also said the capitalist is trapped mm. in the competitive system too. Yeah. Um, uh, now, uh, the... Um, uh, Concept of alienation or Marx and Weber stuff that is really relevant, I think, is best illustrated by um, medieval craftsmen, right? So they were um, carving gargoyles and uh, they would start with a block of stone and then they would uh, lavish their creative ability to turn that into a gargoyle and they did the whole thing. Uh, whereas, you know, Adam Smith observed the pin factory where uh, every aspect of making pins had been uh, broken out and handed to different people. So there's one person whose job it was to stretch the wire, another whose job it was to sharpen point, another whose job it was to stick the head on, another whose job it was to put them in a box, and so on. And so each person was just doing one very small bit of the production process. So unlike the medieval craftsmen, there's no end-to-end ownership for the job you're doing, for the, for the output. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, medieval craftsmen, you didn't have a person who was the expert in doing the gargoyle's nose, right? The craftsmen learned to do noses and that enhanced their enjoyment of the job. And I think, you know, take that as an example, the way that we look after customers, we don't have a call center and then a billing team and a metering team and a sort of engineering team and a second stage escalation and a third stage, and all that stuff. Instead, what we've done is we've uh, built a platform that means that every member of our operations team can see and control every bit of the process of looking after a customer. And uh, we've trained, recruit and trained people to be able to do everything themselves. So if you phone up, you really shouldn't be put through to another department, left on hold, told you to get called back. Instead, the person you speak to should be able to resolve any issue. Now, that's better for you as a customer because you're not getting handed around and yeah. it's less likely things will get dropped. That's the worst part of a customer service experience is when you get passed to the third person and you have to explain your situation for the third time. Like, that's totally. just the worst. And it? that's because they're treating you as a yeah. pin on the conveyor belt, mm-hmm. right? And the, the customer is just getting handed from one station yeah. to another. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the kind of approach we have here where the one person will just take, like the craftsman, will take absolute ownership for your issue and custodianship for you as a customer. But it's also more rewarding for the team member as well, because instead of them just doing 400 billing exceptions a day, 
They're dealing with a wide variety of different customer types. They'll be dealing with you know, an old lady who, who's worried about winter heating bills. Mm, and then they'll be dealing right. with someone like who's got a meter with the wrong serial number. They've got to kind of detangle it all through the system. And then they'll deal with someone who's got a complex billing problem. That means you do some quite hard maths to sort it out. And then they'll deal with someone who really wants to understand more about green energy. And, and your day is made up of that variety rather than a relentless list of the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, that's a really good place in which you can say both the technology you want to deliver, where your internal team are a crucially important customer of it, and the organization you want to build are based around uh, fundamentally re-examining what's great for team members based on concepts like alienation, and uh, what's better for customers based on concepts like someone actually looking after you rather than you just being a problem that goes down the conveyor belt. Yeah, I can, I can vouch for the fact as well that um, one of the other things I did as research this was I went on Glassdoor, and um, your reviews are really good uh, for the you know the write ups of yeah. staff members you know working in the business and yeah. um, one of the questions on Glassdoor on the little survey is always advice to management and you know several times I saw advice keep doing what you're doing you know. <laughs> Um, what's what's to improve nothing much really you know and 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 i think that really is sort of testament to what you're saying there that people have that that sort of sense of ownership and they're not just i can imagine if i worked in that kind of a role where it's like my job was just to fill in the address part of direct debits or something all day yeah really boring whereas like you say if you're talking to the old lady who's got a problem with her heating and it's like you know you're actually having to sort of empathize and connect and actually feel a part of that customer's life rather than just being the, the next cog in the wheel and passing them on to someone else kind of thing. Absolutely. And like, it means um, quite a few other things. We don't have scripts, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, our team, everything they do is based on the fact they're well-trained and smart, caring people. Mm. And therefore, they're able to decide for themselves how to handle something. Um, they don't have uh, limits when it comes to, for example, making a refund or a goodwill gesture to a customer. They don't have to get signed off on anything. They don't need permission. They don't need to escalate it to yeah, a manager. Right. Uh, they may ask a manager for help if there's something they don't know how to do, although they're more likely to ask the colleagues sitting next to them. Um, but that empowerment is you know, something we relentlessly drive to the extent that you know, there are times when things aren't going well, when teams are overloaded or you know, we're, we're giving people more work than is reasonable uh, because of the way the business has developed. And, and you know, we need to make sure they're temporary and we'll... we'll deal with that and really address the problem as quickly as we can. But um, whenever things are not going well, there's always a temptation to move towards command and control. Mm. And mm. we stand there time and again at a fork in the road that says, should we do command and control? Should we start telling teams and team members what to do and more precisely delineate every responsibility and, and then metric it, you know, put a measure on everything they do? Or do we remind ourselves about the fundamental belief we've got in the talent and dedication of humans and therefore actually give them more freedom to solve the problem mm. and ask them how we can help them rather than tell them what they're going to do. And, and I think, it, you know, it, it's so tempting to go command and control because it feels like you'll quickly get hold of something. But every time we've chosen the other path, we've ended up being really pleased with it. Yeah. And I guess the reason people do go down that route is to do with risk as well, right? So it can feel easier to scale and it can feel yeah. like that having scripts and having all of those kind of processes are ways to, to, to make the outcomes much more predictable. But 
so I'm interested to know, like, what have you found by not following that path? Um, presumably there are like more, you know, sort of like mistakes or more anomalies to deal with and things like that. And just interested what your learning is on that and, and what's made you decide to keep on that path. So the first thing is we should never confuse the path of freedom and, and um, decentralization for chaos or yeah, anarchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, just like society works very well with some basic rules and then we all kind of find our own path. Um, so we need to make sure that, you know, we have some basic rules. Um, but when we talk about things like mistakes that may come about because we don't have scripts, actually, you know, it's very easy for people to get hung up on the odd mistake that happens. But forget that what scripts let you do is scale mistakes. Because yeah, if you've yeah. got a mistake in a script and you're forcing everyone to read it, <clears throat> you're going to have 10,000 conversations a day that are wrong. Um, the second thing that scripts do, uh, and the same goes for so much else in corporate behavior, is they encourage wrong behaviors. So someone whose job it is to drive sales will try to work some aggressively commercial wording into a script. And um, you know, the legal department, the compliance department, whatever, will react to that. And then they'll all kind of push each other to find the compromise. And, and what you end up doing is, bit by bit, the commercial side usually wins, by the way. And so they'll get more and more aggressive commercial wording in. And then the lawyers and the compliance people will need to make sure they've got more and more caveats in. So there's one energy company which has to read out a 22-minute script to you when you've signed up. Um, now, uh, the first thing is, of course, that's not only an awful customer experience, but it's like the terms and conditions when you, you know, sign up to an iPhone. No one's going to read it all. They're yeah. just going to tune out. Yeah. So although on paper, you've just given all the right you know, kind of warnings to a customer, what you've actually done is caused blindness to the issues. Far better to have smart people that understand. If I'm talking to you about a particular topic, I can make sure you understand it. So uh, what we actually find is uh, it creates a culture where people take responsibility because if you made the mistake, yeah. we'll talk to you about it. Now, yeah. it's not like we'll fire you. We'll have a conversation about why that happened and how we can help you avoid it in the future. And you'll probably know anyway, and you'll tell us what you'll do differently. And your colleagues will support you. Um, but once people are taking responsibility, rather than having the lazy answer that, well, I did what I was told, um, they actually do a better job. We all do a better job. If it's our personal decision and we're responsible for it, yeah. rather than we can just blame the process, blame the system. So uh, it's not always easier for people, by the way, you know, because it is easy if everything's according to the rule. It's just, it's not very authentic. It's not you, it's yeah. not human. It's not great for customers. And actually, it's not great for companies because everything becomes just going through the motions rather than actually lavishing your care and attention, your brain and your humanity onto something. Absolutely. So, so um, let's, let's take that theme then and uh, think about what that means for, for work-life balance and particularly for you. So it feels like it's a very, um, it feels like this business is, you know, it's your mission. It's like, the, it's the thing you want to be doing in the world. It's like, it, it's, a, it's a huge um like you're, you're kind of thinking about this as like a legacy thing that you're kind of giving to the world and it, and it feels like as important as that as you talk about it and it feels like as you talk about um some of those philosophies around customer service that's actually trying to drive that level of sort of care and excitement amongst the staff as well so is that a conscious thing and how do you 
Um, how do you recruit along the lines so that you get people who don't want to just sit there and do a boring thing, but are really as passionate about about this business and this mission as you are? Yeah. So seven out of 10 people that join our business say that the primary reason they do so is they want to fight climate change. And most of the remaining 30% are driven by what we call social justice. That is, you know, they... Um, don't like industries which exploit uh, their bureaucratic, or sorry, their monopolistic or large position to rip customers off. Uh, so most people are joining the company because the stuff they care about is the stuff that we're working on. Uh, Have so, you ever felt like you needed to do the, the Tony Shea Zappos thing of paying people to leave if they're... You know what? Uh, I, I keep, if they're, I, I speak, they're not buying into it. Kind of yeah, I speak to my management team about that every yeah. couple of months and just say, we really should do that. <laughs> right. So we don't currently do it. But I, yeah. you know, I really would like to say to people, if this isn't for you, mm. it would be much better that we made it easy for you to say so. And, and by the way, I remember this from when I worked in a corporate and, and there was a bit when I was quite miserable. But I kind of, I got stuck in a trap where other people's opinions mattered more than my own. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to feel like I was kind of giving up or failing or letting someone down or whatever it would have been. Um, but actually, I would have been happier if I'd left. And I think helping people understand there is no shame in doing what makes you happy. Yeah. Like your yeah. Jimmy Carr thing. Yeah. But I think we also need to say, like, first of all, we're a mission-driven business, right? That's not that we're a business that's crafted a mission onto what we do. We were started to do what we do today yeah. and to do it as, you know, as big a scale as possible because we, I, we truly believe it is the right thing to do. Um, I think we are also a business. You know, I'm a passionate believer that business is a great way or can be a great way of solving the world's problems. Uh, the, uh, that means that all the team have got equity. So if we're financially successful, and by the way, I have no idea whether, I hope we are, I hope we will be, but you know, just like Kenny Rogers says, there's no point counting any chips. Yeah. But if we're ever financially successful, everyone gets to share in that. Um, and I think that's a really important um, corollary because we're saying really, look, have faith that we are going to deliver the change we want. Yeah. Um, have faith through tough times and easy, um, buy into the mission. And by the way, if anyone makes any money in this, you'll be part of that too. You're not, nothing you're doing here is sacrificing yourself. It should instead really be fulfilling yourself in every way, whether it be in the long run financially, whether it should be according to your morals and purpose, your desire to make the world a better place, and indeed on a day-to-day -day basis, having an enjoyable job with great people who care about the same things you do. Cool. Really love that. Um, I'd love to talk to you maybe... Um uh, a bit more probably like a, another time and not on the podcast, but, but about how you go about instilling that equity piece within the business as well. Because I've been talking to other businesses about that. There's, you know, it's, it's always an idea that floats around for me with my business as well, um, but really inspiring. Um, thinking about productivity, um, what do you, do you, do you sort of have any particular uh, sort of, key philosophies around how you stay productive or particular sort of rules that you set yourself around how you make sure that you're uh, being the best leader that you can be and being as productive as you can be? Yeah. So if we separate productivity from leadership, not because they're different, but because I'll answer each of them. Um, first of all, on productivity, uh, I guess 
I'm obsessed by it. <laughs> okay, so um, on a personal level, uh, one of my uh, rules is I always overbook. I'm like okay. an airline. Right. Okay. Um, and then I relentlessly prioritize because I think um, if you uh, if you book to exactly your capacity, you'll find that half the things you end up doing you actually didn't really need to do. Whereas if you're overbooking and you're forced to prioritize all the time, then uh, you're focused, then you really do spend most of your time doing the stuff that will make a difference. The second thing is... So tell me you know, about the practicalities of overbooking. What, what yeah. does that look like? Uh, on, a, on a basic level, it does sometimes mean I'll overbook my diary. Okay. Right? And right. then I have to make a call about which thing's going to yeah. happen. But I think on a more um, practical sort of level, what it usually means is um, I will set more goals for myself than are achievable. Right? Okay. I'll have yeah. more ideas I'd like to pursue, yeah. more opportunities we'd like to pursue. Um, and... Don't allow the fact that I'm already at capacity stop me thinking about more. All mm. it will do is mean I reshuffle yeah. the list yeah. and whatever drops off the list won't get done and that's fine, yeah. right? And it's absolutely fine. And it's learning to get comfortable with the idea that you could have been working on something and then it drops off the list. Um, you've agreed with someone, you're going to do something and it drops off the list. Now, it doesn't mean you leave them hanging. You have a conversation that says, hey, look, that thing, I don't think we should be pursuing it any longer. Yeah. But what that does is it lets you really... Um, ensure that the big stuff is making it into your list. Uh, the second thing is um, how you define um, what you're doing. So you know, imagine you're having a meeting with a, your team, a weekly meeting, and uh, we talk about what we're going to do this week. A lot of people say, I'm going to work on the front end of the website. I'm going to work on some blogs. I'm gonna... and, and the challenge is there's nothing there about what they're actually changing it's what they're working on. And how we spend yeah, our time right. isn't really what's important. What's important is what we've delivered with the time. Yeah. So if someone says, I'm working on the front end, it's like, that's cool. What's going to be different yeah, why? Yeah. by the end of the yeah. week from the work you're doing on the front end? Yeah. And by the way, it's a good example of what I mean by overbooking. So maybe we're sitting there with a team member and they're going to say, look, I'm going to change the front end so that we've got better validation or you know, customer details. I'm going to write three blogs on the following topics so that customers better understand what's happening. And I'm going to work on with the data team to give people a better dashboard for energy usage. So that by the end of the week, there'll be a dynamic dash. Um, now, you look at that list and go, there's no way we're going to get all that done this week. But it shouldn't stop us thinking, let's start out the week thinking of that. Because if the middle one turns yeah. out to be not that important, we'll just bin it halfway through the week and do the third one instead. And so that idea about saying, and by the way, it can carry over to the following week, right? But that idea about making sure you're always um, uh, relentlessly setting high goals and then reprioritizing and everything you're doing is about delivery on how you spend your time you can achieve a lot so uh, I think that's kind of uh, one of my personal goals uh, the other one is meetings so I hardly have any I don't I don't have diarized one-to-ones maybe there's one member of our team that loves them so I'll do them with her <laughs> right. but really no one else yeah I have very few set meetings okay um and instead what i do is i call it west wing management so you know you went what's the west wing and everything's always moving yeah right and you have that brilliant thing where they're walking from you know the oval office to you know the, the garden and on the way they have four mini conversations yeah yeah but by the end of that simple five minute walk four different initiatives have been progressed that's how you if you want to run a really agile fast moving business 
that is so much more productive than spending an hour in a room. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of which, if there are meetings, I re- religiously try to avoid letting people make them an hour. Because what they'll do is, you know, it's entropy. The, the, the stuff you discuss will take an hour. Instead, put in 10 minutes. Yeah. Make sure you've got time to overrun if you need it. But the vast majority of things can be done very, very quickly. Um, now, I say that, you can then make a decision. You can say, look, this is something we need to really explore. So if we really want to like, understand where customers are misunderstanding how energy bills work, we say, look, we've got some research on this. We really want to dig into it. We say, great, we'll spend three hours on that because we really got to dig. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, try and make deciding and planning meetings very short. Digging meetings can be longer. Um, and that digging one is really important because uh, our CTO often says measure twice, cut once. You know, uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile is only powered for the first 15 seconds, I think, of its journey. You've got to point it at the right angle. Yeah. Right? Because if it sets off at the wrong angle, it's certainly like, you know, the old, what was it, V2s in World War II, right? Set off at the wrong angle, they're going to end up landing in the wrong place. So what you have to do is whenever you're setting off on a project, get it set on the right angle to begin with, put a lot of power in at the early stage, and the project will go where it needs to go. What so many people do is they shortcut at the beginning, right? And they don't do that deep dive, and they have a whole load of project meetings, because if set off on the right angle, it's always going to fail. Yeah. And so what sort of strikes me about that is that um, there's a big challenge in there around carving out that time for deep thinking like getting three hours of all the right people in the room to be able to really scope something out it's a hard thing to do just to have one person whose job it is to think about that to really spend that time and and to get everybody aligned and all that it's a difficult thing likewise it's also a difficult thing um for you if you're overbooking to sort of carve out that space for you to personally be able to to think really deeply and kind of listen to your intuition all those kind of things so how do you make that happen how do you create that space for for the deep thinking yeah. and the and the kind of being uh, in that yeah. slightly more reflective mode. That's cool. Yeah, sorry, I should be clear on the overbooking. Um, that doesn't mean that I put eight hours of meetings into a six-hour day and then cancel them. Occasionally, that will happen. Yeah. But actually, what it usually means is, for example, most afternoons, I try and keep a three- or four-hour block with nothing in. Okay. Right? So there are huge blocks in my diary that say DNBO. It's not to think about a specific thing. It's not to work on a specific It's because... Um, that will enable me to either dynamically catch up with team members about where things are and, and um, you know, do a better job of leadership and being there for people when they need it. Um, or um, if there's something I really want to go away and think about, I can deeply reflect on it. If I want to read a great book on productivity, <laughs> I might use that time for that. Yeah. Um, but so I actually put in very big chunks of time that are relatively religiously guarded to be able to give mental space to everything that matters. And that's for you as well as for the team as well, which I think is a really important thing. Yeah, and then by the way, I say to the team as well, like, stop putting in meetings. You know, yeah. don't, in the early days of the business, I do it less now, but I'd walk around the building and if I saw people in a meeting room who I didn't think, I thought there were too many of them, <laughs> or I couldn't see why they would need to be together, I'd just go and say, what's going on here? Because <laughs> right? people got that meeting culture yeah, from the corporate yeah, world. Yeah. You know, yeah. the bit where... Um, they, you know, that bit where people slouch off to a meeting with their books or their computer under their arm and, and they kind of resign to this is how they spend their life. And then they all sit around and they do some shitty corporate banter. And then at the end of the meeting, an hour and a half later, they all go, well, you know, back to the grindstone. <laughs> right? What a fucking awful, forgive me, what an awful way to... You can swear, it's fine. Yeah, fine, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, but what an awful way to live your life and run a business. 
And, and yet they're doing that because they feel they have to. So what we have to do is whenever we stop people feeling like that, we kill it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and I think over time that culture starts to um, scale. So I spot others doing the same with their team. Like, what are you going here? Brilliant. Um, I, I spot the marketing standards, like 15 people, that's 15 minutes. Because they know time is far too precious to just, uh, you know, spend a load of time together achieving nothing. Another one is um, alignment. So many companies are obsessed that you've got to engage, include everybody. Get them all in the room. Like, they all know what's going on. Um, we'll have a big kickoff meeting. And actually, it says, like, I'll tell you what, like, the only people we need in the room are the ones that are personally going to make a large contribution to the decision that gets made or are going to be taking away a large chunk of action personally um, that, you know, is going to change their, yeah. their, their working week or life. Everybody else, we'll just drop them an email afterwards. We'll catch up on the West Wing management. We'll grab their views on the way. Like, uh, I'm not going to invite you to an hour meeting. What I'm going to do is have 45 seconds of your time to ask you what should go in that meeting. Yeah. And then I'll go in. And in doing so, I've just saved you an hour. Um, and help people get used to If you're not in the room, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, in fact, quite the opposite. You've enjoyed the gift of time. And that is one of those things that has to come from culture, doesn't it? Because if you're in a fearful culture where you feel like you, if you're not in the room, you don't count and, and all that sort of stuff. Totally. Um, so that sort of leads us, I guess, into the leadership part of the question as well. So um, tell us a bit more about your, you know, your sort of values around leadership and, and, and like how you lead. What, what are the kind of key things for you? Well, first of all, I'm really glad you mentioned trust there because I think trust is uh, critically important. And it's critically important at several levels because I think you've got trust in ability and trust in intention. So uh, if we've asked someone to do something, do we trust their ability to do it? Yeah. Uh, now, if we don't, we shouldn't have asked them to do it. And if we do, we shouldn't need to you know, kind of sit there with checklists all the time, mm. right? Um, uh, and if we've got any concerns, we should make sure we brief them properly. So if they haven't done this job before, don't let them find out. I mean, you may decide the cost of failure a particular job isn't particularly high. But frankly, on the whole, far better to anticipate what might go wrong, have a quick chat about that, then let them get on with it. Trust and intention. You know, is someone doing something for the right reasons? Are they leaving me out of the meeting for the right reason? Um, are they um, carrying out a project that doesn't include me for the right reason? Uh, now, if you don't have trust on both of those levels what you end up with is micromanagement insecurity and absolutely no freedom or time yeah. um back to that conversation on time management you know the you know you've got to trust why you're being when you're not in the room but you've also got to get everybody who is in the room to recognize that they're providing the people who are not in the room with the gift of time because mm. they can yeah. get on with something else yeah. Um, and as long as we all recognise we're doing each other a service there, it's hugely important. Jason Freed from 37 Signals has this thing where he says, my job as the CEO is to get out of the way. Mm. I really like that. Yeah, I think we often talk about upside-down management. So um, our job is to let the people who are responsible for the delivery run the business. And, and our job as managers is therefore to be there when they need us, to yeah. help them when they want help, to answer their questions. And, and then to watch what's working and not and put our arm around them and guide them when, when required. And that then frees us up to set direction, to spend our time researching the future. 
But one thing I often talk about, like a classic management thing in, in, a, in a lot of corporates will be uh, you invite someone and say, hey, look, I'm thinking about this. Can you go away and look at it? Mm. And you'll send someone off to spend a week or a month or whatever it will be researching something. And then they come back and you look at it and you say, you know, uh, well, thanks very much indeed. In fact, then goes in the drawer and nothing happens or you disagree with it or whatever it will be. And you've just wasted all their time. Uh, similarly, you'll say, look, can you go away and create four designs for this front page and we'll decide which one we like? And you've wasted three quarters of time has now been wasted for the person doing that work. And what we do is we say, look, it's actually the job of the manager to spend our time thinking about this so that we don't waste our team's time doing it. So don't ask them for four versions of the web page. Think it through and say, hey, look, um, I thought through these four ideas. I think this one sounds right. What do you think? The person creating it says, that's a great idea. Actually, I prefer number two. You say, great, go do number two then. Yeah. And you've just yeah. reduced their, mm. or you increased their productivity 4x and you've respected their time. You haven't treated their time as being non-valuable. And, and that's critically important if you want to scale a business because there's a lot more of them than there are of me. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, if we get their time well used, then we're scaling great use of time. Okay. So if anyone should be taking a risk with their time, it's actually me. Yeah. Right. And yeah. say this for the management team. I say to them, like, you should be risking your time to save your team time. Mm. And that's the way we'll scale. What that sort of necessitates from you is that you've got to be really upfront around making those very direct decisions to then to save them the time of going away and either wasting their time or having to make those decisions themselves. So how does that look on a kind of Thursday afternoon at four o'clock or Friday morning, whatever it's like, you've been doing that all week. Yeah. What are your sort of personal things around how you keep your mind in sort of tip top shape to be able to do that? Cause that's, you know, that's really draining, right? It may be, um, maybe I'm lucky here. I find it really enjoyable. Yeah. You know? um, but decision fatigue is a real thing. Right? It so is. The more, the, more you, the more of that you do, the harder it gets to be the one who's having right. to make all the decisions. That's probably why you need to have those chunks of time for reflection. Yeah. Uh, because during time on reflection, you actually are resolving questions like that. But the other thing is what you do, you make the decision collaboratively. So someone comes to you, and instead of you just saying to them, look, um, I've only got five minutes, go away and for, come up with four options and come back tomorrow. Mm. You can actually say, hey, look, um, I've been thinking about this. I think there are four options. What do you think about the following? They go, well, there's a couple more. And yeah, that's cool. Good point. Okay, let's sort of talk this through. And in 10 minutes, you agree that they're going to go and look at the one that seems best. So you've done it collaboratively. It's not dictatorial. But actually, what you get out of that is a high. You know, that collaboration is a re-energizer. So every time you're having collaborative conversations with people about stuff that is exciting, I come away from it more energized than I was before. Um, so I think the vast majority of the time, by having collaborative engagement with uh, people who are doing stuff that you know really matters um you end the day with as a, at least as much energy as you started it nice um so there's one quick answer to leadership it's really interesting right so um a lot of companies will talk about it's okay to fail yeah but they don't necessarily seem to know what that means yeah and i think the first thing is a good example is wasting a team's time so someone's got an idea and they want to carry an initiative and you're not sure so you get them to go away and work on it and they come back and propose it and then you give them all your feedback and they do some more work and then they come up with the business model and they do the spreadsheets and you keep sending them back to do more and more work and they're selling the idea really really hard to management yeah and eventually you let them go and do it 
they're never going to admit it's failed. They're never going to admit it's wrong. Because you spent months, months and months and months making the heart and soul into persuading you to do something. Yeah. It's far better, far fairer to people to actually say up front very early, great idea, let's do it, right? Um, or very occasionally, let's not. Uh, but I say very occasionally for a reason we'll get to in a second. But um, uh, if you say great idea, let's do it. And by the way, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out. But it will be less effort to go and do it than it will be to persuade me. Yeah, and right, if you spend okay, all your effort yeah. persuading, you're never going to back yeah. down. Yeah. Whereas if you we've agreed, you're just going to try and see what happens. Mm. You feel pretty good when you come. Hey, we tried that thing, didn't work. Ah, oh, cool, no problem at all. What should we do next? Right. So you completely invert that usual conversation, and you value people's initiative and their time, and you haven't forced them to defend the wrong or something transpired to be wrong. Which also strips some of the biases out of it, right? Because you get these these conversations where, like you say, because someone's so invested. It's really hard to actually make an objective judgment about whether that's a good thing to do. In fact, both sides become invested in their, yeah. in, in their, in their own position. Mm. We had a great example last year when one of our guys um, decided he wanted to give away eight electric cars in a competition. And I was like, fucking hell, Max. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it's a lot of money. And I'm not sure it looks good either. Yeah. Um, you know, we want to bring great value to customers. That seems pretty wasteful. Mm. Um, and... Uh, he said, well, what if we gave away four electric cars and then some scooters and bikes and other electric things? And, and he said, like, what it would cost and then pointed out it was 18p a customer. I'm like, brilliant, go and do it. I was never convinced. I didn't think it was a particularly good idea, but, you know, he's the guy at the cutting edge. We can afford it. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. It was a roaring success. It did an amazing job of helping communicate to customers and, and the rest of the public the work we're doing to promote um, electric transport, critical part of decarbonisation. And um, actually, uh, through the competition, loads of people referred friends to us. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, it would have been a cheaper way of acquiring new customers than um, using switching sites or other forms of customer acquisition. Oh, yeah. Max was right. And I was really glad that rather than having spent months agonising over this, we did it in a few days' time. Um, and if it hadn't worked out, Max knows he can say it doesn't work. And if it does work out, I'm over the moon to say my initial reaction was wrong. Yeah. And, and you know, I think another one in terms of leadership was um, our marketing director, Rebecca. Um, after, I can't remember, after a meeting, she said to me, look, Greg, um, uh, I really respect you because of the personal integrity you show when you don't ever slag people off or criticize them or whatever. I can't remember the exact phrase. But you've started doing that lately, right? You've started taking those shortcuts. And um, uh, I realized she was right. And um, yeah, I thanked her for mm. telling me that. And, and realized that what I'd done was I'd just been lazy. I'd gone for a cheap laugh or trying to get something done without, you know, doing it the easy way, not the hard way. And when she reminded me of that, what, it made me so proud. First of all, of the person I really was, rather than what I allowed myself to become for a few mm. days. Um, and also uh, proud to have an organization where she could say that. And that is really tough, right? Exactly. For somebody to challenge their boss, whoever their boss is, let yeah. alone the founder and CEO and, and everything else. That's right. And that, like how, so what is it about the culture that allows her to, to do that? Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? It's, it, it's the thing that's max kind of come with an idea and know that whether it works or not that's cool yeah uh let's her know she can say that and i think 
actually comes from what she was saying, which is showing massive respect for people. So knowing that if you get something wrong, yeah. no one's going to be like, ah, oh, idiot. You know, no one's going to be, there's not going to be a, a, a sideways compliment. Um, there's not going to be a one conversation to your face, another one behind your back. And, and um, you know, I work really hard and I, you know, our managers are great at this as well. Whenever you spot um, people having a, you know, a conversation that isn't to someone's face, that isn't honest, um, that um, is the beginning of corporate politics, we nail it. Mm. And, and it's because we treat it as being like one of those um, uh, impossible to kill infections in a hospital. It's like, you know, once it takes hold, it's mm. unbelievably difficult to get rid of. Yeah. So right now we're lucky enough to be infection free uh, and it, we have to relentlessly stay like that. But as long as we do that, we've then got that trust we were talking about earlier that lets people take risks, that lets us genuinely celebrate failure. Um, and when I say that, you know, we get the whole company together every Friday. So every Friday after um, uh, work's close at 5.15 p.m., uh, we join up our three locations by video and I'll talk about what's gone on during the week. I, I talk mainly about the positives, but I'll talk about negatives and tackle difficult issues as well. Um, but that's also where, for example, we had a, a rare outage. Our platform was down for... 40 minutes at one point. And um, the head engineer got up and showed everyone the mistake that he made that caused that to happen. And by the way, it was one bracket missing in a line of code. And because of the way the code worked, it was almost impossible to spot. Mm. Um, And um, by telling everyone what happened, and then everyone giving a massive round of applause, because um, what we know is that... uh, that team, the team that he runs, they've written a million lines of code in the last year. Um, 999,999 of them didn't have that problem. Um, and if they were excessively paranoid about the one in a million that had that problem, they'd be producing them at a tenth the rate they are. Yeah. And as a business, we'd make less progress and we could be less honest and open with each other. So by saying uh, you know, something like that, Knowing that people are willing to work at exactly the right risk level, that an occasional error like that will happen, um, and then we can all be open and honest about it, we disseminate that culture that makes everyone know it's okay. And far better if people make an error, they tell us, yeah. and we put our arm around them, and we solve it, than uh, you know, we castigate them or make them have to hide it or try and, try and fix it without anyone knowing, which almost inevitably leads to more problems. So I think that kind of openness and trust, whether it be the feedback we give each other, the way in which we um, recognize that what we ask people to do means sometimes they will make mistakes and that's fine. Yeah. Um, is, an, is, is really how you bring those statements that so many companies have got to life in a way that so many companies don't do. Yeah. I used to work with the CEO that um, her line was, um, I have no problem at all if you screw up. As long as you own up and clear up, it's fine. And I think I think that's really like the uh, the sort of key message. But really powerful. Um, I think um, there's like two other things I wanted to talk to you about. And I'm just going to check that we've got time. Um, we've got a couple of minutes. Um, so just before we start recording, you were talking about um, your definition around work-life balance actually being slightly different from that. And you talked about work-life blend instead of work-life balance. So do you want to just explain what... Uh, just explain work-life blend and what that means to you. So look, when I was um, in a corporate job, I really enjoyed it, uh, but it was only 
when I left, I realized that actually I was hanging my personality up at the door every day. Um, I was obeying the rules, the processes they laid. They had processes for everything. Mm. Um, and they had ways of behaving that weren't what any of us are naturally. And so I really was living two lives. While I was at work, I was being a sort of corporate drone, frankly. And then when I left there, I was the normal, creative, lovely human being that we all are in our lives. And uh, uh, what I realized when I moved on from then and started creating my own businesses um, was, uh, you know, what really mattered to me is if, if, if I'm going to spend eight or 10 or whatever hours a day at work, uh, that's a massive proportion of my life, of the actual number of hours I'm going to spend a life, alive. And if I'm not being myself, I'm not alive. So what, what I needed to do was create a workplace environment, a culture um, that allows us all to be ourselves at work. So we don't hang our personality up at the door when we hang our coat up. Now, if you're being yourself at work, if you're truly able to be yourself, um, then work ceases to be a compartment in your life, but it's just another expression of yourself in your life. And, you know, if one enjoys expressing oneself or having, you know, sort of your life experiences, which I hope we all do, and that's happening at work, actually work and life start to really blend mm. because work is the place that I am being myself as much as I am at home. And so um, what that begins to mean is that uh, I lose the distinction in work-life balance and really every waking hour is just being me. Now, I've got loads of things I've got to deliver. I've got a family. I've got two kids and a partner, um, and I love them. I want to spend time with them. Uh, but at the same time, I've got hundreds of team members, and I love them. I want to spend time with them. And I've got a massive mission, the opportunity to change the world for the better in a way that is really meaningful on a big scale. And I really want to spend time doing that. And the only way that you know I can achieve all that is not by having firm boundaries and barriers, yeah. but really blending it. And so um, I need to make sure that if I'm here with the team, I'm really present for the team. If I'm at home with my family, I'm really present for my family. But that isn't achieved by building a sort of world in which each one resents or is opposed to the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. It's built by one where they work together really, really well. And, and then espousing that my way for the team as well. So you know, one thing I love is when we do our Friday sort of catch up, we have drinks and sometimes people bring their mums and their friends. <laughs> if people have got a birthday, they'll often invite a dozen people onto our yeah, company's right. drinks, right? Um, and that'll be the beginning of the evening that they'll go out and celebrate their birthday. Yeah. And they're able to do that because they can be proud of where they work and we can embrace their friends and make them kind of, you know, I suspect, you know, kind of make, make them look good with their friends because, you know, I hope we're a cool place to work and I hope that when their friends come in, they think that too and that makes everyone look good and that's cool. Um, so I guess, yeah, for me, that idea that um, it, my family can be proud of what I do, but so can everybody's family here, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so you kind of begin uh, that hugely positive symbiotic relationship rather than a resentful compartmentalized one between work and life. Um, and ultimately, you know, I hope that we're going to transform people's lives. They'll learn stuff here. They'll grow as people. Um, they'll discover new ideas. They'll make friends. Uh, and we spoke earlier about equity. You know, they'll actually hopefully they have a stake in it. Yeah. They've got a stake yeah, in it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's 
much more uh, in keeping with a, a harmonious view of the world yeah. than a traditional work-life balance view. Um, how do you, so the boundaries are more flexible, all of that's an expression of you. Do you ever find that um, the boundary shifts far too much one way? And that could be both ways. So does it shift yeah. too much to working too many hours or does it shift to actually I'm you know invested far more over here with like personal life stuff and, and things are slipping? How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? So I think it's having massive respect for both. So um, yeah, by the way, I leave at the office at 3 p.m. on Tuesdays to do the school run. Okay. Uh, and uh, at 3.30 on Wednesdays to do the school run. Um, because I want to spend time with with my sons, um, and from time to time, uh, you know, I'll make sure I grab some time that others don't get the chance to do. Uh, but I'm not the only one. Um, our my, my one of my co-founders, our CFO, he doesn't come into the office on Wednesdays. Uh, he spends a lot. Of, you know, his kids are at nursery, but he's going to be there for the before and after and spend a lot of time with them. And by not coming into the office, he doesn't waste time commuting both ways. And then. Um, uh, and then um, uh, that's right. It's all part of the Beyond Busy experience. So uh, cool, isn't it? Marlene, your assistant, has just brought you. What, what are you? What are you drinking there? Is, is it caffeine fueled? It's the... a single shot skinny latte. Okay, single shot because I, I I drink a lot of it, but it helps keep the. Um, and is it on an hourly? Coffee. Is it on an hourly sort of regular <laughs> regulation uh, time frame? I think because um, uh, I've got a meeting shortly. She's uh, probably. Uh, she's Got coffee for guests, <laughs> and it's kind of got me more while she was at yeah. it. But um, thanks, Marlene. Um, the uh, I think it's good. But um, um, marketing director Rebecca um, lives in rugby, a long way from London, okay. and um, you know she does an amazing job of managing her team and her work. Um, and she has an incredible relationship with her kids, and um, kind of blends. Uh, there's no rule about when she's going to be in. She blends that um, love of spending time with the kids with the love of spending time doing work and, and makes it all work. And, and I think, you know, no one, you said earlier, it's hard to get people in a room for three hours, right? Mm. Uh, and I spoke to uh, large companies about our flexibility and they say, well, you know, how do you get people in the room for three hours? What I've tended to find is, first of all, by encouraging people to respect and value their time, their days are not fully booked up. Uh, Marlene used to work at Microsoft and um, she was used to an executive diary being back-to-backs, one-hour meetings all day long, all right? And when I said to her, look, I want you to make sure I've got three or four free mornings or afternoons a week with nothing in, um, it seemed to her like, wow, what's going on? Okay. <laughs> but that's an expression of this idea yeah. of time. But once you start valuing people's time, first of all, when you do need to get people together, they're more likely to be there. Secondly, if you give your team flexibility, they give you flexibility, so if someone's got, you know, family commitments, but we want to have a three-hour meeting, they'll totally say, look, I'll find a way to do with family commitments so I can be there for that three-hour meeting. Because all of these things, like, we're respecting each other. Yeah. So it's not like the company's demanding three hours from them. It's that uh, the company's fantastically flexible when they need it, and they're fantastically flexible when the company needs it. And it's trust both ways, right, that makes that happen, which exactly. I think is a really, really special thing. Yeah, there's no measure of it. Yeah. You know, we don't... Yeah. Don't keep track of these things. You just know if someone's doing a great job, they're doing a great job. If they're not doing a great job, they're not doing a great job. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. Um, final question then. So you are on this mission to um, to really challenge and disrupt the kind of big, uh, you know, uh, very bureaucratic, um, you know, sort of legacy companies in the energy space. Um, as you grow, as you're going to hit a million customers this year, 
you're going to start to look a bit more like them. So how do you make sure that you stay away from being that sort of fat, lazy company that rips people off? And how do you stay true to the, the sort of values that you've set as you become much closer in size to how they look? So we recruit I know, 10 or 20 people every fortnight. And uh, one of the highlights of my working time is when I spend an hour or two with them discussing what you and I have been discussing today, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, they will often ask that question. And I say to them, because I'm asking you to keep us honest. <laughs> and there are a lot more of you than there are of me. So um, every single member of this team, uh, every single person in the company has been asked to guard the stuff that they love today to stop me or anyone else or themselves from those temptations that gradually turn into everything we don't want to be. So really, we park the responsibility for that everywhere. That matters because, uh, you know, when you, for example, when people often say they don't like about a corporate, it's all the process. Every bit of process they don't like there was created by them or one of their colleagues, mm-hmm. right? So they yeah. make a short-term decision, that, oh, we just need this process. Yeah. But before you know it, everyone is foisting process on everyone else. So if we're, saying, if we're saying to our team, we don't want you to do that. You don't want to work in a place like that? Don't let it become one. Don't make it one. They're guarding that at every level. Um, and it makes sure they keep us honest. So, you know, we have very open conversations about things like pricing. And the team will talk to us and say, hey, look, you know, we're a company that prides itself on giving great value and working hard to make prices as low as possible, not as high as possible. Are we doing that with this decision? So, uh, you know, I think we've got currently hundreds and one day it'll be thousands of culture guards and that's the way we'll do it. Nice. Really inspiring. Um, Great to chat. So if people are interested in finding out more about Octopus Energy and and also finding out more about you, where can they find out more? Where can they uh, find you guys online? Yeah, so uh, our website is octopus.energy. And then uh, I would love to meet them on Twitter where I'm uh, G double underscore J. So G underscore underscore J is me on Twitter. Cool. And uh, I love engaging with people there. Nice. Um, Great chatting. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you very much indeed. So thanks again to Greg for being on the show. So we stopped recording and then we just kind of carried on chatting afterwards. And then at the end of it, I just thought, hey, why don't we do like a referral code or something? And so it just wasn't like, so they're not sponsoring this. There's no like, there was no, um, you know, sort of requirement on on uh, their part to do this. But I just thought, I just really want to promote these guys. So if you are interested in switching your energy to a renewable energy source, and let's face it, like switching energy suppliers it's one of those things that is always at the bottom of the to-do list and it feels like oh i'm just never gonna get around to that one and it's never a priority really is it but honestly i did it this morning it's it's so easy really really easy and really goes to show that a lot of the stuff that greg was talking about in the episode about using customer service to make something a pleasurable experience it's really true um so you can switch your energy supply and also save 50 pounds in the process so if you just go to thinkproductive.octopus.energy uh, then you get fifty pounds off you off your bill. So thinkproductive.octopus.energy. We'll again put the link to that in the show notes um, and more at getbeyondbusy.com. So you can get a link from there. Um, we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes to so that Seth Godin video that I mentioned um, during the episode as well, because that's um, one of my favourites. Um, but yeah, if you want to switch energy, thinkproductive.octopus.energy. 
And um, honestly, I did it this morning. It took me like three minutes. It was just a total joy to do. And um, yeah, go do go do that. Go check it out. Um, our sponsors for the show are Think Productive. If you're interested in productivity workshops in your company, or if you're interested in you attending one of our public workshops, just go to thinkproductive.com and find out more. And uh, I'm off this weekend to go and watch baseball in London. It's the London series. It's the first ever uh, two games of MLB Major League Baseball in the UK. Yankees against Red Sox. The Yankees are kind of like, they're kind of like what Man- Manchester United used to be and sort of a little bit uh, what Manchester City are now. So I just hate the Yankees so much. I really hope they don't win both the game. Uh, they may well do. And if you're one of those people who uh, are in the Venn diagram of being really interested in productivity and also really interested in baseball, um, then you're probably one of my favourite people. And if you're going to one of the London games, um, come and say hi. So just uh, send me an email at graham at thinkproductive.co.uk or you can Instagram DM me and it's just at Graham Alcott on Instagram. Uh, and if you're not following me on Instagram, I'd love you to. Um, I'm really trying to do more on Instagram, partly because I've quit Twitter. Uh, so this happened last week. This was just a slightly spur of the moment thing, but I've been sort of thinking about it for, I don't know, two or three months, really since I had Cal Newport on the podcast. Uh, Cal Newport is the author of a book called Digital Minimalism. And one of the things he suggests in the book is quit all of your social media for a month and then see what you want to replace and add back. Honestly, I feel like since quitting Twitter, it's only been a week, I feel like I've got more headspace. I feel like I'm less anxious and less angry about stuff that's going on in the world that I can't control. And I'm I'm really aware that there's like a privilege aspect to that, right? To to sort of be immune to the news is like, that's sort of coming from sort of quite a, a Western privileged place, isn't it really? But it's, you know, it's true. It re- it's really true. Like I just feel less anxious and I feel better for it. So right now, I don't think I'm going to go back. I think Twitter's done for me. I think it's become, it's become a really dark place for me, um, you know, and just it, it, its role in kind of enabling the rise of things like Donald Trump and uh, this whole sort of culture about uh, getting outraged every five minutes about a new thing and, and the sort of attention economy around, um, you know, outrage for clicks, basically. Um, I just feel like it's really not good. It's just really not a healthy thing. And, and Twitter feels like the worst place for it. So I've quit. And uh, yeah, time will tell whether that's a permanent thing, whether I'm going to go back. But right now, I'm really happy to not be on Twitter. It's really good. Uh, anyway, that's a little um, tangential ramble at the end of the podcast. So um, we'll be back in two weeks time. Until then, if, if, there's, um, if this is your first time listening to Beyond Busy, you'll find all the previous episodes at getbeyondbusy.com. Some really interesting ones to Uh, go and check out there and show notes to everything we've discussed in this episode and we'll be back in two weeks time we're an every two weeks podcast we'll be back in two weeks with another episode so until then take care and bye for now